be loyal to the house of Saul, to his brothers, we read, and to his friends. And he says to Ishbosheth, I have not given you into the hand of David. But far from denying the accusation outright, he feigns this great indignation and outrage, pretending he's unable to understand why this outrageous accusation could be leveled against him. But the narrator says he was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Abner dodges the question. He praises himself. He's not a victim. He's a villain. And then in verse 9, he finally tells on himself. He lets too much slip when he reveals that he knows God's promise. And yet he suppressed it. He even reveals with the language that is striking that he knows the Lord has sworn or promised to make David king. This is a man that is an outright, self-centered rebel against God and his will. Abner's now using God's word for his own purposes and ambition. Can you see that? He's saying, since this isn't working out for me here, you're causing me a headache, Ishbosheth. I'm going to turn and say, okay, I'm following God's word now, and I'm going to help David become king. This is pragmatic for him. It's self-serving. Perhaps there's power to be gained under David's rule if he gives David what he thinks he wants. Do you see how very much like Abner we tend to be in our own hearts? How often do we set aside what we know to be true in God's word to pursue something we want? We know God says certain things that we should and should not pursue. And yet in a moment of temptation, we set that aside and say, maybe, maybe I'll try to obey that later. Or God will forgive me. I just want my way. Where in your own life are you pushing obedience to his word to the margins? Where might you be secretly dabbling in sin, even though you know it's not right or safe? Now, how will God use this petty squabble between two sinfully ambitious men to accomplish his will for his people? It leads us to number two, the surprising peace through Abner. Let's continue our reading now in verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does the land belong? It seems that he's saying it belongs to me. I have a control over it or authority. Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand, my influence, my power shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he, David, said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from the, her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, for some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying... 
by the hand of my servant David. I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin. That's Saul's tribe, his family members. And then Abner went to David at Hebron. All that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Now Abner reaches out to David through these messengers, asking him, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you. To bring all Israel to you. He thinks he has this great power and influence. Notice the several references now to the hand. And we saw this in 1 Samuel. That refers to power or control. He thinks he has significant influence in this situation. One author concludes of Abner's offer here. It may be that Abner, as the de facto ruler of all Israel, offered David his allegiance in exchange for the position of commander of the army. Certainly he has the credentials. Certainly in his mind he is owed that, that post. It's the equivalent of his current office, and yet it will be expanded if it's joined together. And it is the post currently held by Joab. Now, no matter what Abner is seeking to accomplish, even through his self-centered and disloyal actions, what is clear is that the Lord is working behind the scenes to deliver the northern tribes into David's hands. This is not the way we would have expected David to receive all Israel as his kingdom. Now, we're perhaps surprised to read in verse 13 that David's willing to make a covenant with this man who's been so obviously treacherous to his current king, who's been David's enemy now for years. How could David trust this man? Why would David trust this man? And yet David agrees to make a covenant with him with one provision. The condition is his first wife, Michael, Saul's daughter, is to be returned to him. This leads to this rather pathetic and sad account of another marriage being ripped apart in order to provide David with an even tighter grip on the throne. This is politically expedient for David. Michael's husband is heartbroken when the request is granted and we can't help but feel sorry for him in his grief. What is going on here? Why would David require Michael to be returned to him? Now, we don't have the full answer to this. It's a difficult question, isn't it? It's a very sad and pathetic scene. It doesn't seem that David's doing this out of love for her, but that's possible. We don't know. She was his first wife, and she was wrongly taken from him. According to Deuteronomy 24, it was within his rights to reclaim her if she'd been taken away unlawfully. This was also the clear custom of the day in such legal cases. But it's most likely that there is sin here and its consequences are laid at the feet of several men. Certainly it was wrong. It was sin of Saul to rip her away from David in the first place. Was it also wrong for her current husband to have married her 
after she'd been taken from another man? I don't know. You decide. Was it wrong for David to have taken her away from her current marriage? Did he need to do that? No matter what the case, this seems to be illustrating again the devastating consequences of God's kings working pragmatically for their own political benefit. David taking Saul's daughter would have secured him even more so, strengthened his claim to Saul's throne. Verses 17 through 21, Abner now acts to accomplish what had been promised to David. Counsels the elders of Israel to finally act on what they had apparently desired to do. That's an interesting note, isn't it? What has been stopping them from doing what they desired to do? Apparently, it was Abner. Statement Abner makes in verse 18 is again staggering, considering his recognition of God's plans to deliver Israel through David. Abner knows it's God's will for David to be on the throne. And here again, we see God mysteriously and quietly at work, affirmed in the words of this treacherous, power-hungry general. Did you see it? God had promised David that he would be divinely enabled to protect and deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. That's what Abner says. This was a promise originally made to Saul in 1 Samuel 9, and it's now true of David. And yet notice in the verse that God himself is acknowledged as the true deliverer of Israel. Abner says, the Lord has promised David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will deliver my people. Do you see how God is still subtly acting to accomplish all his will? And surprisingly, we're reminded of it in the words of Abner. The peace accords between David and Abner are now complete according to verse 21. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. All the tribes of Israel are being united. Finally, as God intends under his chosen king. Finally, this long-awaited day seems to be here. God's used an unexpected enemy. This enemy general's sinful ambition to bring the nation together in a new way that he's intended all along. Surely now will be the time for David to be publicly recognized and received as the king of Israel. And in this high drama, we're at the point in the movie where you cue the triumphant music. Now is coronation day, right? Not yet. Verse 22 begins just then. So let's read the conclusion of the chapter. Verse 22. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away. And Abner had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he, David, has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought Abner back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not 
know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands, Abner, were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it. And it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death this Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince or a commander and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So thirdly, we see the unexpected obstacle of Joab. A new hurdle arises out of nowhere. There's an old score to settle and a position Joab is equally desperate to protect. Notice the repeated theme of peace in verses 21, 22, and 23. The narrator has said that three times on purpose. This was a crime. It was evil. And it threatened the peace of Israel. It was self-centered. That peace is stolen by Joab's selfish and devastating action. All that seemed to be going right in this moment is undone through this crime of jealous and vengeful murder. How would the northern tribes ever trust David as their king when his general is murdered in cold blood, when Saul's general is murdered in cold blood. What's really at stake here is God's will for his king and his people. Do you see that? This isn't just some horizontal, temporal, human interaction. Can't you see the great enemy seeking to add one more obstacle to the plan of God? To try to overthrow or thwart his plans by stirring up Joab to jealousy and revenge? Joab plays the part of assassin against a man who had been promised free and safe passage. This was essentially treason. He's first screamed at his king in an irrational tirade dishonoring himself. 
speaking wickedly to his authority. And yet throughout this entire account, the narrator makes it crystal clear that this is Joab's doing. David had nothing to do with this. He's still ascending to the throne God's way. God will work now to turn a terrible situation into an opportunity for David to rise even higher in the eyes of his people. This is the unexpected but promising obstacle that God uses. In verse 26, the narrator states, he repeats with clarity, David did not know about it. In verse 28, David declares himself forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner. He then pronounces a devastating curse upon Joab and his household. It's a five-fold kind of plague. He calls for him to be always plagued with continual sores. And then leprosy, lameness, to be the victim of the sword and to be destitute without food. This is a curse that is devastating and severe upon all of Joab's house. Verses 31 through 35 describe David's response to this crime and national assassination. We should see here that David is genuinely and publicly mourning the death of Abner, and he honors him in several ways. First, he calls on Joab, his murderer, and his men to follow the customs of mourning at an Israelite funeral. They're to tear their clothes and put on sackcloth. Not sure this would have been on Joab's mind to do. Second, David provided Abner a burial of great honor. He doesn't take him back to his hometown. No, he buries him in a state funeral among the patriarchs of Israel at Hebron, the capital city of the kingdom. This is like the honor provided the most significant cities in England, being buried within the walls of Westminster Abbey. It's like an American soldier being buried at Arlington Cemetery. David shows Abner the utmost respect with this funeral and this burial. Third, David commands Joab and his men to lead the funeral procession demonstrating national grief. And David would walk right behind this body, mourning publicly. His grief is public as he weeps for the loss of this man and the loss for Israel. Fourth, David pens another poem that serves as the eulogy expressing the injustice of his death and the wickedness of his murder, all in the presence of that murderer, Joab, and his men, and all Israel. And finally, David refuses to eat fasting as an outward expression of the inward grief that he felt. Consider how God uses David's gracious response in this very difficult moment to one of his own enemies. Certainly we shouldn't be surprised or think that David wouldn't have moments of saying, God, is this the path forward even through this evil? And yet he knows that this is wrong. He sees God turning what could have been a disaster into an opportunity to elevate David further. It pleased all the people, as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner to death. In spite of all the scheming, the wicked ambition and plans of men in this text, God's will will be done. He's zealous for his own glory. 
He's resolute and determined to accomplish his good plans for his people. He's not thwarted or discouraged even for a moment by the schemes of wicked men. This is not a moment in biblical history that has fallen outside of God's control. God doesn't condone any of the sinful decisions. But he supersedes and he reigns over them all. Psalm 37, 7 tells us, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Again, Psalm 46, 10, we're commanded, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. David's seeing that happen here. Now, there are certainly all kinds of lessons we might be able to apply from a text like this. But there are at least two that especially stand out in this passage. First, we should recognize the great spiritual need of God's people. This passage is filled with intrigue, sexual accusation, dishonesty, disloyalty, deceit abound. Second Samuel is filled with stories of the sinfulness of men, some far worse than what we see here in chapter 3. And we might wonder why the Holy Spirit would want us to see all of this corruption. Why record this? For Christians for generations to read and see and hear about? Why do we need to see all the wickedness and ugliness about God's people? Well, this is actually intended for our good. And we should actually rejoice in this. Because this is teaching something about us. We're to see the nature of our own hearts in these characters. Though our actions may not be outwardly as bad, our hearts are the same. Like them, we are more attracted to favor and influence than to God's glory. Like them, we're more attracted to the praise of men and the riches of this life than we are to the beauty of our Christ and godliness in following him. Like these men and women, we're attracted to being seen with the people who matter more than we ought to be. We plot and scheme in our hearts to receive the recognition and promotion of our own wills. And very often we don't care who we trample on to do it. We ignore the clear teaching of God's word in order to do what we want. Human acceptance attracts us more than it should. Physical and sexual pleasures of this life attract us more than it should. These are people just like us. And it's good for us to see the nature of our hearts illustrated. The Bible's not afraid to record these ugly details because it's honest about the evil residing in every human heart. The Bible's not seeking to elevate the deeds of men, even the finest of men. The sinful depravity of even God's people reminds us again of our desperate condition and it points us to our God who alone can meet those needs. This passage points us again to the unfailing, uncompromising, faithful love of God for his people even when they're unfaithful. 
God pursues his enemies. God pursues those who are weak and sick and blind and desperate. In his grace, he resolutely pursues a sinful people and provides for them a final king who will meet every need and finally conquer all of our sin. This table this morning is that reminder that God places before us to do repeatedly because we need that reminder. And even in this table, he displays for us our sin that must be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We must look at our sin before we recognize our need of the substitute. Secondly, in this passage, we also see that even God's finest servants are but fallible men. We're already seeing grave weaknesses in David's life that will lead to great tragedy and heartache for the man that God has chosen. I hope if you have this conception that David is just this wonderful Christian man that sits in a field strumming his harp, writing wonderful psalms, that you're disabused of that notion. He is a man. He turns to his God regularly, and that's to be followed. But he sins, and he sins greatly, and he sins repeatedly. And this book is not about David. We're not to look at David and say, we should be more like him ultimately. But we need David's God to provide what he provides to David. David multiplies wives to his own future hurt. And did you notice? He hesitates to truly bring Joab to full justice. Again, the narrator doesn't comment here because the story that God is weaving is much more complex. God still has things to do with and through Joab. But this surely cannot be justice. Joab will be a thorn in David's side until David lies dying and he commands Solomon to execute him. And one of the crimes he's to be executed for is the murder of Abner. This passage is showing us that there are no perfect people and no perfect leaders. If there is a man worth following because of godly character, that is because God's grace is being worked out through him. And follow him as he follows Christ. But don't ultimately set your hope in a man. Instead, we have the perfect king who is always completely trustworthy and faithful. The weaknesses and sin we see in David the king should encourage us to run to Christ, our king. In many ways, David will sin in greater and more wicked and devastating ways than Saul ever did. We'll see that through this book. We must then set our hope fully and finally in the God who alone can offer forgiveness to such sinners, sinners like us. He alone can fully and finally deal with the sinfulness of mankind. This passage encourages us that God's final king accomplishes all God's will in spite of human opposition. In this chapter, we see ambitious, selfish men seeking to accomplish their plans, and yet without ever condoning their sin for a moment, God accomplishes all his will through their own choices. God's using all of this political drama, all of this upheaval, all of this chaos, 
all of the intent, evil intentions of these men to advance his purposes. Do you see your God? Do you see his power, his sovereignty, his determination to do good for his people? Ambitious Abner thinks he's delivering the throne of Israel to David. Yet he's ultimately accomplishing not his will, but God's. Joab's murder of Abner threatens the peace that's being established in Israel. It seems to threaten God's plan, but it does no such thing. God instead turns that again into an occasion to elevate David even more in the eyes of all Israel. God's not thwarted by sin. God reigns supreme over every decision, every circumstance in our lives. Even the wicked actions of sinful human beings may be used by God to bring about his redemptive purposes. His plans are not discouraged by the wickedness of mankind. And doesn't that truth point us directly at Jesus? Isn't it true that the most evil thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind is also the very best thing that ever happened? In Acts 2, Peter states clearly that it was both the wicked plans of evil men. They did their will. And they murdered the completely innocent one. And yet at the very same time, this was God's will. His plan being accomplished. He crushed his own son. He did it through the actions of men. We don't understand always how that works together. We're not supposed to. We're to trust. Because we know our sovereign God is able to accomplish all his will, we're urged by Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This waiting doesn't mean passive resignation, but active trust. So maybe as we've talked about patience in the last two weeks, where is his spirit seeking to encourage you to trust him, to wait on him. Wait and trust him in your confusion, your discouragement, your frustration. We're not to interpret our lives through how we view things. We don't walk by sight, but by faith. We don't seek to understand in the moment through our circumstances. We interpret our circumstances through God's word. This requires us to rehearse again and again the truths of scripture, the character of our God. The hymn we sing, God moves in a mysterious way, encourages us, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. In many ways, this passage leaves us questioning why God would work in these ways. Elizabeth Elliot wrote, there will be no intellectual satisfaction on this side of heaven to that age-old question, why? Although I've not found intellectual satisfaction, she says, I have found peace. The answer I say to you is not an explanation, but a person. Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. Let's pray.
a gracious God in heaven, we rejoice in your wisdom. This is not how we would talk about God's people. This isn't pleasant to look at. It can even be confusing. Lord, yet you're patient, you're long-suffering, you're wise, you're able. You can work even in the worst of circumstances. So often we don't understand what you're doing in our lives. We don't understand what you're doing in our world. And yet this passage calls us to trust, to recognize your sovereign hand behind each and every circumstance, even the sinful choices of men. Father, we need a king, not a king like David, a king that you sent, the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. Father, may we see him better, know him more as we see your work, as we see you providing to us that substitute, the suffering servant who willingly gave his life so that we might have eternal life. Help us now as we come to this table to recognize the beauty of our Christ, the wonder of your plan of redemption, that we might turn our hearts to you again and find encouragement and hope and peace and joy. Encourage us now as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a few moments of silence.